Welcome to this week's edition of Cogley and Morrow on Politics. I'm Eric Morrow, and I'm glad to be back uh, this week after being out last week. But uh, Dr. Cogley uh, had the honors and did a great job with the show with uh, having Dr. Kabbalah uh, discussing uh, some of the constitutional elements around the impeachment and looking back at uh, Andrew Johnson and the impeachment at that time and how it connected with the process today. Uh, so I'm glad to be back. It's this week, uh, Dr. Cogley is away, but he will be joining us in the second half of the show uh, by phone. And so we'll welcome him all the way from California, uh, where he's uh, visiting family, and uh, we'll be discussing and looking at updates on the impeachment process. But before we get to that, I just want to remind you that our show each week uh, airs here on KTRL-FM. Uh, 90.5 at noon, but you can also uh, listen to the show on SoundCloud. Uh, You can connect to us through Facebook to see critical articles and information uh, that connects with the stories that we're discussing each week. And then also wherever you get your podcast, uh, you can download and listen to our shows if you're not able to catch it at noon on Sundays. So for, for our first segment today, we want to look at a related issue to the impeachment process. I'm I'm welcoming to our studio and to the program uh, Dr. Dmitry Perevertalenko, who is a faculty member here at Tarleton State. He's in our Department of Fine Arts. Uh, he uh, teaches uh, the clarinet, but also plays professionally, uh, not just in the U.S. but around the world. And uh, but also, Dr. Perevertalenko uh, is from Ukraine and uh, spent much of his life there, and then has uh, done his formal studies here in the United States. And uh, now we're very glad to have him as a part of our. Uh, university and a part of our fine arts program, uh, but in our dis- in my discussions with um, uh, Dr. Pereverteilenko, uh, w- we were connecting and talking about the attention that the media has given in this impeachment process, not just to Ukraine. Ukraine is a word that's being said over and over again, and in connection with a number of different facets of of the impeachment process and the the inquiry that's gone into that, uh, but it's. Uh, there's also been attention given to Ukrainian Americans. So in this country, we, we have approximately one to one and a half million Ukrainian Americans, uh, those who have uh, uh, immigrated to the United States, who are citizens here, uh, with many of them living in California and New York. Uh, but but many Ukrainian Americans also live in Pennsylvania, which the reason Pennsylvania is significant when you're talking about presidential politics is it is a swing state. Uh, and it is a state that also President Trump won in 2016 uh, by less than 45,000 votes. So when you start looking at it that way and you look at uh, a um, – uh, a, a specific community that has a correlation to some of this, you start to think, okay, there's there might be an impact in the upcoming election, especially when it comes to how Ukraine is being portrayed, how uh, uh, what Ukrainian Americans are perceiving in terms of uh, how presidential leadership and uh, the executive and foreign policy issues are connected with that. So we ask uh, uh, Dr. Pervertilenko to join us today. Uh, he keeps up with politics, uh, uh, some of these issues, uh, the Ukrainian-American community, uh, and also with his um, uh, with his country of origin, which is a way we refer to it. Uh, this is an area that I've done some study on where I've looked at uh, ethno-identity uh, and how that connects with uh, politics in the U.S. in terms of domestic and foreign policy. So we're going to bring all of that together uh, with Dr. Perevertilenko to really look at uh, how some of the things that have been covered in the media related to Ukrainian Americans and their perceptions of of all of this and the impeachment process, uh, and also get you know just get his perspective on some of this, but also look at this kind of unique dynamic where. Here you have a community uh, or or a group of people within this country where an issue all of a sudden brings that to the forefront and can very much have an impact on uh, on on their politics, on on what 
how they see and participate in the American political process. And another facet of this is how they connect that uh, with their, their their country of origin. Uh, one of the words that's used to describe groups like this is uh, a, a diaspora. So in this country, we have numerous. In fact, we're, we are the most diverse country in the world in terms of diaspora groups that have come to this country. Uh, country, could be first, second, third, even fourth or fifth generation, still identify as Ukrainian-American, Greek-American, but they also have a strong connection either related to family um, or just identity uh, to their country of origin. And so oftentimes that brings uh, international political issues or U.S. foreign policy issues very much into the mix when they're engaging in politics in this country. So before we we dig into that, I want to welcome uh, Dr. Perevertolinko. Welcome to the show. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background growing up in Ukraine and uh, and then, uh, you know, coming here for study, but then also uh, your engagement with the Ukrainian-American community. I know there, we don't have too many Ukrainian-Americans in Stephenville, uh, but but they are here in the in this country. Uh, as we've talked about with some of these articles, there is a very strong Ukrainian identity. And so that has a, has a role in this. But, but again, tell us a little bit about your background. Hello, Dr. Morrow. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to the show. Um, so... I was born in Ukraine uh, in 1979, which back then was part of the Soviet Union. I was born in the city of Kharkiv, which is the east of Ukraine, and I pretty much grew up uh, still during the Soviet times. I was 12, well, Soviet Union collapsed, so I still have memories. They're more or less childhood memories. And um, I uh, did my bachelor in Moscow, Moscow Conservatory in Moscow, Russia, and then after that I moved to the United States, to Texas where I did my master's, my doctorate degrees, and um, now I live here and work here, teach music in Texas. Uh, So that's pretty much my story, uh, briefly. And um, uh, there is a, uh, not a huge community, uh, Ukrainian community in Texas, but uh, there is definitely a a diaspora. And uh, I know that uh, Pennsylvania has a pretty large uh, population of, of, of Ukrainians. And uh, those are, like you said before, either people who immigrated uh, in the last maybe 10 or 20 years or their you know, parents or grandparents immigrated back back in the day. So definitely there is a pretty strong uh, Ukrainian diaspora in the North America, both the United States and Canada. And uh, there is a pretty strong sense of Ukrainian national identity. And of course, the recent events has influenced that quite a bit. Um, so, uh, as a Ukrainian American, uh, my, let's say, I can tell you one thing, uh, for sure that, um, how I feel about the recent events and, and what, 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 how it's related to events in Ukraine. Um, I feel like Donald Trump so far, he has still pretty good support of, of the Ukrainian diaspora. I know a lot of Ukrainians, Ukrainian Americans voted for him. Um, but I can tell you one thing for sure. The more he's going to show favorable uh, attitude towards Russia, the more uh, friendly gestures he's going to show towards Vladimir Putin, the less happy I'm going to be with him. And that uh, includes my voting preferences. That that, that seems to be a, a consensus among uh uh, Ukrainian Americans, uh, with with what has happened with the Russian invasion of Crimea, and then the conflict yes. going on, and 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 so that you think about this in a uh, put this in a context of coming out of the Obama administration, which uh, Ukrainian Americans were not so favorable because of Obama's kind of lack of action. Uh, but then also, uh, I, I was interesting to read in some of the the comments that were made by uh, Ukrainian Americans that were interviewed about. Uh, this idea of uh, uh, within associating the Democratic Party or even liberal ideology with socialism. And so that the more that that connection is made, uh, that that has really pushed many Ukrainian Americans. It could be because of political culture in the in, in Ukraine. But then you're, you, you brought up your experience living under um, uh, uh, the Soviet Union, right. uh, that 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 brings back memories and really connects with an identity that is very much opposed to that. Pretty much, pretty much. Uh, 
people who came from uh, former communist uh, countries, they definitely don't want to see uh, any elements of socialism here. And even any mention of, you know, like any kind of social elements that definitely scares those people, scares them off because they basically ran away from it and they don't want to see it in this country that I can tell. And it's not just the Ukrainians or Eastern Europeans. I'm sure people of other ethnic origins coming from former Soviet countries, such as Vietnam or Cuba or any other Latin American countries would probably feel the same way. Yes. Is is, is there so moving then on from that to look at uh, President Trump. And so there, there's kind of a quandary here, as as we're seeing here. And I, I wanted you to maybe talk about this and what what you 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 feel in, in examining or, or experiencing and seeing this. But then also in the Ukrainian American community, uh, you mentioned Trump's association with Putin and the more that right. uh, concessions or engagement with Russia is moving in that direction. Uh, but you also still have this this support, and this is where it got caught up in the impeachment process, mm-hmm. of uh, Trump moved forward when uh, President Obama did not in providing uh, funding and resources of to support Ukraine in its conflict, military hardware, uh, uh Non-military aid was the policy before President Trump. So he comes in and makes this this very uh, major change that then gets caught up in this uh, the impeachment inquiry of of where well and, and really beginning with that of uh, whether the age is was withheld or not. I mean we we've gone into that at length on this show and looking at the impeachment inquiry. But I would assume that 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 puts. Many Ukrainian Americans who, like you said, many were supportive of Trump, kind of in the middle of all this, of, of not know, okay, what, what direction do we go? Right, you're right. Uh, because um, if we look at Trump's foreign policy and his domestic policy, there's like two different elem- animals. Because in his foreign policy, he definitely expresses a desire to cooperate with Putin and cooperate with Russia. But his domestic policies are pretty much that's something that a lot of Ukrainians uh, actually support. because. You know, they support, I'm sure, the free enterprise and opportunity and moving uh, all the production back to this country and and that's uh, and making America great again. I mean, that's definitely something that uh, a lot of Ukrainians would support. And that's why uh, I'm sure a lot of them still support Trump. And uh, I just hope that pretty much, uh, you know, his words about trying to cooperate with Russia really not going to turn into actions. Uh, because that's definitely going to uh, turn a lot of uh, Ukrainian Americans against him. So, in in the impeachment inquiry, one, some of the things that we came out that were associated with uh, with Ukraine uh, was, uh, on one hand, this idea of well, there's there's corruption there, and the accusations, you know, that the Bidens were involved in it. Some of that was directed more at business interest and not so much the government. Uh, there was also uh, the uh, uh, claim that it was Ukraine and people in Ukraine who were involved in the uh, engagement with the past elections. And so mm-hmm. trying to influence the outcomes of elections with technology, I think it's it's very clear, or at least it, the, the ma- majority of, of people across the board, except the fact that this originated in Russia, not in Ukraine. Right. But, but that still came up and you still had even senior politicians in Congress that were just wavering back and forth on this. Then you had uh, the uh, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman, exactly. a Ukrainian-American who had has served uh, in the military, decorated uh, a military officer who offered testimony during this process. Uh, and he was uh, eviscerated at certain points where you had a lot of negative things. Well, he has dual allegiances and all of this where, again, there were n- some of the, much of this was not substantiated but it the 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 challenge there was that it, it continued to cast a, a negative image toward Ukraine and uh, what your thoughts on that and, and in terms of its impact on the Ukrainian community uh and and the really re- the response to this well i think that the impeachment scandal is not really about ukraine it's it's about republicans fighting democrats and they just uh trying to bring as much of a dirty laundry as, as possible and and in this situation it happened to be ukraine <laughs> and um 
definitely there is a corruption in in Ukraine. I mean, I I wish I could say that it's not, but un- unfortunately, that's the reality. Um, but as far as uh, I I definitely uh, uh, disagree with Trump uh, really dissing that uh, the the war hero uh, um, Alexander Windman, I believe his name is, and uh, well, I mean. <sighs> I wish there was more positive publicity about the Ukraine. And uh I mean a lot of a lot of those claims are actually uh pretty much more or less inspired by Russian propaganda, especially with uh, meddling with the elections, because if 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 we remember that was a big scandal of Russia interfering with the elections. And and then all of a sudden at one point uh, certain articles started to appear, oh they were actually Ukraine meddling with the election. And then it just uh Look to me, it looks uh, like just a propaganda move, basically, to kind of oh yeah, let's distract attention from here, let's forward it here. And again, uh, unfortunately, there is a corruption in Ukraine, and that's that's why it's it's kind of a you know easy target. Uh, but uh, to be honest, I I I do not think that. Uh, well. I certainly don't think that Ukraine interfered with elections in, in right. 2016 by, well, and, by, and, and, by and any means. And most agree with that, that there's not uh, – you, you, it's very interesting because you – as we've discussed all along, the impeachment process is very much a political one. Exactly. And so the 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 a, a point sometimes of many arguments is to try to affect public opinion for a political outcome and to get the support that you want, to get the, that outcome that you want. And sometimes that means – taking things like this and, and things that certainly people don't understand. So I would I would say that most of our, our listeners uh, are, are not uh, uh, very much aware of the Ukrainian-American community, of, of Ukrainian politics, of, of um, related issues. Well, that, that makes it very easy for at times for politicians to kind of manipulate that and, and both sometimes intentionally sometimes unintentionally, but they're still trying to get the, the outcome that they want. And wh- one of the things that, I, that I've seen in this, and, th- and this is in my study, I've done a lot of work on, on Greek Americans. Uh, when you look at, at Ukraine and you see the challenges that the country has gone through over uh, the last century, uh, you see the, you know, really the genocide that happened there as well. Uh, uh, you and then you you look at other countries that are uh, similar in some ways where immigrants came to this country seeking opportunity they 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 wanted freedom they wanted uh, economic opportunity uh they come here uh, they often gather uh, in areas that where they can be with uh, people from their same country of origin. Uh, they form associations, uh, and there, there's uh, several related to the Ukrainian-American community. Right. Some of those are fraternal and for fellowship. Sometimes it might be around uh, religious organizations as well. Uh, but then it's also, uh, uh, as we've seen over time, it, it is about engaging in the American political system, uh, sometimes to... Uh, lobby for uh, uh, for certain issues on foreign affairs, uh, uh, trying to influence the U.S. government and its influence. Uh, sometimes it can be on domestic issues. Uh, I, I wonder if, if you, it, in your experience or just your knowledge of the Ukrainian community, uh, what have been some of the the primary concerns of Ukrainian Americans when you look at, say, the role the U.S. government has, either both in terms of foreign policy. Uh, I know, we, you know, we've already talked about Russia and, and so on, but there may be more uh, elements of that. And even you mentioned domestic policy. Right. Well, if we just compare in general, uh, let's say, political culture in the United States and political cu- culture in Ukraine, those are definitely different because um, in, in Ukraine, and it's probably inherited from the Soviet times, the role of the government is much bigger. Government is much bigger just in the people's lives as far as you know, they tell them what to do. They're regulating people's lives. Here, definitely government is uh, plays a smaller role. And that's, again, that's why a lot of uh, Ukrainian-Americans uh, did not really support uh, Democrats and Obama for the like last uh, eight years but before Trump, just because Obama was trying to make the role of the government bigger than it was. And people usually don't like being told what to do. And 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 if especially if they're immigrants or descendants of the immigrants who actually ran away from that oppressing government, and then here they found the country where government actually is not really 
oppressing people as much and not really interfering as much with people's lives, that's definitely another very um, attractive point. And that's uh, that's another reason why actually a lot of uh, Ukrainians vote for, voted for Trump and overall voted for Republicans. And, um, and of course, Republicans are usually a little bit more decisive when it comes to the foreign policy. And of course, it's when it comes to dealing with rogue dictators, and 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 that's another reason why uh, Ukrainians, uh, Ukrainian Americans, uh, I mean, they, they support Trump and re Republicans uh, in general. I I think that that would be um, probably the reason. And um, yeah, so so domestically, that that relates to to policy. Uh, I remember reading in one of the articles where a Ukrainian American was being interviewed and was very adamant about, you know, we don't want to live in a welfare state exactly. where where the government is providing everything. Again, that's that connection with uh, with the socialism that was exactly. experienced, or or even at times the the uh, from what I understand. Uh, the majority of people in Ukraine were, were were adamant against this collective farming and and really pushed back against back the 30s, and and yes. suffered for that. I mean, oh, they yeah. suffered tremendously for that, and so they they have a history and an identity that's very strong against government intrusion Absolutely. into their lives and and property and and well being. So you you could see where. Uh, not only the attraction of being able to come to the United States and be in a, in a place where you have this broad array of freedoms, uh, but then also uh, the way they view government exactly. and then associate uh, party-wise, you know, in terms of where, where they think government should be going. Uh, one, of, one other thing, now th this is an interesting dynamic too, because we, we know that in, in uh, immigrant communities in this country that that often things change. There's all there's an, a, a challenge of maintaining identity. Of we want this to be passed on. We don't want our children and our grandchildren to lose connections right. with their country of origin. Thus, you know, send them back for summer camp or for family. Right. Or uh, I, I was reading one of the articles. This was one that was from the New York Times, where uh, they were having an uh, in Western Pennsylvania having that international. Uh, or Ukrainian film festival. Oh, yes. Uh, and the gentleman said, uh, and so here it was one of the nights, uh, and then the first night the, the, the attendance wasn't necessarily that great. And it said the next night uh, when the lights came on after the, the first film at the festival, uh, the, the coordinator here, the person that was sponsoring, stood up in his seat and he says, uh, this place should be full. Uh, shame on our people, he declared to the auditorium and to our uh, fellow Americans who are considering socialism. Shame on you. Now, we focused on the last part of that about socialism, but it's focusing on the first part because it it kind of rings true of some things I've seen in Greek American communities where the the the. Uh, uh, the affinity of younger of generations to their origins uh, really changes over time, and that that kind of challenge to hold on to that identity. And I wonder if you have have had any experience with that uh, being here in this country, uh, or maybe even talking about yourself. How do you how do you express your your connection and your relationship? With that Ukrainian identity, that that uh, I, I would assume, you know, being your first generation, this is very significant and important to you. Uh, for and I and I say I ask that because in contrast, here I am, I can go back and I have to maybe five or six generations for my ancestors of coming here, uh, and so often. Uh, we struggle with understanding how much of that is an influence in uh, people's lives when they are first, second, or third generation. And and then how much it may influence the way they see government uh, and and politics. Uh, so I, just just a question on that note of how 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 do you uh, uh, what are ways that you still connect with that or do you do you see some of these challenges within the Ukrainian American community? Yeah, um, well, I'm the first generation immigrant, so I was born there. That's why for me, uh, it, it's not a problem. I never think about losing my identity because my family, my like my parents, my sister, my my you know cousins, they still live in Ukraine, and I still go visit quite regularly. So uh, I I don't feel that problem because I still have uh, a lot of people who care about living there, and and I talk to them daily pretty much and a lot of my friends uh here not in Stimulus, but in the, in the Dallas Fort Worth area I you know I do have some friends f from Ukraine and I'm trying to 
keep up with them and stuff. But I, I can see that um, if it's a second or third or fourth generation um, of, of Ukrainian-Americans that were born here, they're pretty much Americans. And uh, that they definitely worry and care about more about domestic issues, what's going on here, because that's pretty much what affects their lives the most. And especially if they don't really have any family back in Ukraine, it's harder. It's harder to keep up, uh, keep keep your national identity. Uh, I mean, you can still read the news and stuff, but if it's not affecting you directly, again, it's just, I guess, it's a people's nature. Right. So uh, I think that might be part of the reason a lot of people who grow up here, they're pretty much you know, Americans, and they're more concerned with, with domestic issues rather than the foreign issues. But I can tell you for sure that people who actually remember, who experienced uh, some of the, you know, the, the issues that were during the communist regime, uh, they will never forget it. Right. And uh, it's, I guess it's just a matter of how, uh, for, for the immigrants, how you raise your children to make sure that they're aware of what's going to make sure they appreciate it. And... Uh, Right. Well, Basically. one of the things I've seen in in, in like the re research I, I've done, and I think this probably holds true. I've, I've looked trying to find time to look at more uh, 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 diaspora communities right. in this country is that uh, because we are so diverse in this country and many of these groups are small, we're talking about a, a one to one point five million people. Uh, the impact politically is sometimes not that significant, and sometimes it it, it really doesn't come to light uh, to see what's what these com these groups are doing uh, until uh, a, a country is in the spotlight, like right. a Greece or Ukraine, and and so the the when you weigh that over against U.S. national interest, uh, sometimes the impact of that, is, like I said, it's very negligible. Uh, and, and often it's focused on foreign policy because, again, we're talking about countries in strategic parts of the world. But the, but the real impact is much more on uh, communities like Ukrainian Americans or Greek Americans in the process of assimilation. So the more they engage with political issues connected with their country of origin, the more they become become assimilated into uh, uh, American culture and politics, which is, is very interesting. It, it, it has really kind of that reverse effect of we're, we're very strongly connected to our country of origin, but we're where we want to be. We're, we're living in, in, in the United States, uh, uh, but, and we, we are very concerned about issues there. But the more that they engage in the, in the political system to try to affect change or influence policy, uh, the more that they they align with U.S. national interest and and really become much more assimilated politically uh, and socially as well. I mean, it's it's very oh, interesting. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting. And so this be, creates that challenge within those communities of holding on to a unique identity where you have the flags and you have the yeah. the, the Independence Day celebrations and you have all the things that relate to the country of origin where you have certainly first, second, sometimes third generation are very engaged. But you move beyond that and it becomes right. very, very uh, challenging. Uh, um, so really in closing here to get back to uh, our initial issue, um, what do you think, do you, do you see any impact of this uh, on, uh, in the next, in the election cycle? Do, do you see that uh, where Ukrainian Americans are now and, and, and at the outcome of this, or does it kind of seem like, well, this is probably going to be old news uh, by then and Ukraine will kind of fade out of the, out of the picture uh and, and and the impact of this will go back to being more of how they perceive Trump and what he's doing and not so much on, okay, well, we're, we maybe get, there may be negative publicity here or, or attention being given, but we know that's not accurate and we're still going to move, you know, go on with what, where our positions are related to uh, how they see a candidate or politics in the U.S. at the moment. Well, I certainly hope that this bad publicity will, will end at some point or turn pretty much going to going to go down. And um, I do believe that in a swing state such as Pennsylvania or Florida, it actually uh, could be an, an something that basically like a decisive factor. And of course, a lot will depend on the, what's going to happen in the future as far as the political situation, uh, well, in Ukraine and Russia, because we all follow the news, what's going to, all those gas talks and, and uh, conflict on the east of, of Ukraine. I'm not even talking about the Crimea, but the actual east of Ukraine. 
And there were some negotiations going on lately and Ukraine has new president now. And, and a lot of things uh, I think uh, going to depend on what, what's going to happen in the future, what Trump is going to end up uh, doing. And, uh, I hope that nothing really horrible is going to happen. Uh, and um, I think eventually it will kind of get back to, to, to where it was. And uh, that's pretty much what I think about it. And um, I hope that Trump uh, will, 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 will not do uh, any further steps to get close to, to Russia or justify the Russian annexation of Crimea or anything like that, because that will definitely create a lot of issues and a lot of negative reaction from uh, people of, of Eastern uh, European heritage, not just Ukrainians. Well, and we know this issue uh, you know, goes back to 2014, but uh, as you've talked about today, the, the this relationship goes back centuries and the challenges that are there. And so uh, we're going to continue to see this, I think, developing, as you're saying. It's not over yet, and right. we just don't know where the outcome will be. Well, I, I want to thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, this is uh, it's great to have someone that has the the background and experience that that you've had to be able to uh, to bring something unique to our listeners that otherwise wouldn't be able to engage in uh, in, a, in a, a, a current political issue like this and see it from your perspective. Thank you very much, Dr. So we're very glad to have you. We'll we'll be back in a few moments. We will turn to looking at what's happening with the impeachment process. We we now have an impeached president, uh, which is unique in American history. Uh, only has happened three times. So we'll update everyone on that and look at some of the unique facets of it when we come back. Politics can be confusing, but Cogliamaro have your back. Follow them on Facebook. Search Cogliamaro on politics to stay up to date with the show and for all of the sources to follow right along. Cogliamaro is a production of the Tarleton Radio Network. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. We want to thank you for joining us today. Uh, before we get into our last segment for the show today, I, I do want to extend uh, a thank you to AJ, who has uh, uh, been our producer here on the show uh, for our first uh, 13 or 14 episodes. And, and we want to thank him for the work that he's done to help us uh, get this off the ground. We see our listener base uh, increasing every week. Uh, but we also want to welcome Taylor. Taylor's come on board and is going to be coordinating our show for us each week. And so when you hear Taylor, you'll know that we're, we're we're throwing it throwing it to her for recordings or whatever it may be, uh, but we're glad that she's on board to help us keep moving forward and offering uh, the, our take on politics to you each and every week. So here's a first for our show. Uh, I have on the phone uh, Dr. Cogley from the great state of California. Uh, he's out <laughs> visiting family for Christmas vacation. Uh, he's also uh, getting a little bit of dose of uh, d the difference between uh, Texas politics and California politics, maybe. Uh, uh, hopefully he's taking a vacation and enjoying himself. But we did need to get him on today because he has been doing radio interviews across the country uh, on impeachment. And we have an impeached president. Uh, and so, uh, Nathaniel, um, uh, you've been doing a lot of interviews here. You, you've been analyzing some of this, especially related to the, the vote, uh, the delay in moving the impeachment process to the Senate, and, and some of the political implications going forward into the election cycle. So I wanted to just uh, let you get us started. All right, good. Well, I've been doing uh, guest interviews on other stations. I've never been a guest interview on my own show. So this is fun. <laughs> And uh, I, I want all the Texans to know um, I'm I'm proud to defend Texas out here in California and yeah. say what a pleasure it is to live and work there. Um, so, yeah, we have uh, the third president of the United States that's been impeached in the House. We're pretty sure Nixon would have been impeached if he had stuck around. It's kind of a historical moment. Um, but without any really chance of conviction and removal of the Senate, this is uh, symbolic, too. But it was an interesting vote as we looked at how the members voted. And we had um, three Democrats that broke from a solid yes vote. One of them is very predictable. So that's Colin Peterson in Minnesota. He had voted against the rules. And he's predictable because that's a Trump won that district by 31 points. So, I mean, that's one of the bigger Trump districts in the country. So that is a very sensible vote for him. That's probably going to put him in good position. 
But then we saw this case out of New Jersey of Jefferson Van Drew voting against it. Uh, Trump only won that district by five, and it's a closed primary district. The timing of this vote was so interesting, Eric, in that it's before the primary. And I've spoken on the show before how Pelosi has her own reason to do this before her primary. But it made it difficult for some of the members because a yes vote on these articles is good for a Democratic primary, but make it tough for the general election coming up. And so we see him now in the news last week that he might even switch parties. He's going to have another meeting with Trump and try to be a Republican. He's in a tough spot here, having casted this no vote. And then we saw one representative out of Maine who split his votes. He voted yes on abuse of power, no on obstruction of Congress. That was Jared Golden. Um, That is a Trump district by 10 points, a pretty big, strong one. And it was surprising that we had less breaks. The most interesting vote that no one saw coming was Tulsi Gabbard. People know her because she's running for president. And she voted present. She did not vote yes or no. She voted present. In her explanation, she said she thinks Trump probably did something wrong. But as she read the reports out of the House Judiciary Committee and Intelligence Committee, she thought it was a very partisan process. And that's not the way to impeach a president. That's very interesting because she's running for president in the Democratic primary. I, I, I kind of applaud her courage in voting president. Just uh, I'm not sure politically how that's going to do well for her campaign. Right. Do you, do you think that was uh, more for attention to try to to get her name back in the in the in the limelight related to the Democratic primary, or do you think it's an effort here to show her her independence that she you know is not persuaded by a party? She can she would she would evaluate these things on her own and be uh, presidential about it. I've heard some of her fellow Democrats be very critical about her. I don't have that sentiment. She's show, she always shows me tremendous courage. I mean, this woman was a state rep at 21. She signed up to serve in Iraq and Kuwait. Uh, she became a House rep at 32. She had a safe seat in the House, and she's now um, said she's not going to run for re-election to run for president. She has such level of personal courage and determination more than me. And it it can make for her to make surprising decisions. Having said that, I don't know if this was politically the wisest moves that she's been making, but I think she does have a lot of courage and conviction. So I take her on her word for why she made that vote. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and, and looking at, uh, at the others, I mean, it's, it's very clear to see, uh, the reasons for it. And so you, you really have to tie it to her, I think to her presidential, aspirations that that she's showing that the challenge is as you're talking about strategy this is not necessarily the time in the in leading up to the primary process uh to not be siding with the majority opinion of the people who will be voting in the primaries for your party yeah i just don't understand how this is going to help at least winning the democratic nomination right. because 84% of democrats support these articles of impeachment and she's kind of out there on her own surprising people on the voting day with the present vote so um i just don't know that that's going to result in any more support in the democratic primary but it's something to watch it's a very interesting right. vote she took well and she may use it in messaging that's going to be interesting to see the messaging in her campaign as to how she portrays this and the and and uh, the vote and and her motivations for doing it that way. Uh, so we have have a, de- a delay or not necessarily delay. The the it looks like this is getting being uh, pushed into the new year. Uh, I was listening to Mark Halperin of Double Down and and uh, 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 Fame, and uh, uh, he was being interviewed by Michael Smirconish the other day, and he was talking about and he's you know had this from very good inside information related to the Mc- McConnell office that uh, there was a strategy going into this, that if the articles of impeachment came to the Senate, there was at least one plan of trying to dispose of them quickly, getting this out of the way before Christmas uh, so that uh, the tide can turn, everything can then look at uh, the new trade agreement and, and other things that would be very positive reflection uh, on President Trump. Uh, we now know that that's not going to happen. Uh, so what's the lay of the land now with as we move forward? Well, uh, Speaker Pelosi has said she's not going to um, resolve the question of who the House managers are. So when this goes to a Senate trial, and none of this is in the Constitution, this is just what's been done in the past. In a Senate trial, the House 
who has just formally charged the president with impeachment, sends in what's called House managers, so their own team to prosecute the case. The president has his own defense team, and then the senators are themselves the jurors. Um, So part of the process traditionally has been the House will follow up with a resolution on who their House managers will be in that Senate trial. She has announced she's not going to specify that until she believes that the rules in the Senate are quote unquote bipartisan. I find I, you know, I have a, a number of thoughts when I hear this. Number one, I've always said this is going to be hard for them to send it to the Senate. They're very much been interested in controlling this process in the House. Republicans have complained about the House process and this transferring of control of this thing from the House to the Senate is very difficult. Every impeachment we've had in U.S. history, Eric, has been one party controlling both chambers of the Congress. So it was the Republican Party that controlled both the House and the Senate during Andrew Johnson's impeachment in, I believe, 1868. It was the Democrats had both the House and the Senate in 1974 when the impeachment of Nixon was taking place, although it never reached the Senate. And for President Bill Clinton, in 1996, the Republicans had both House and the Senate. So we have never seen an impeachment where the, the, the Congress itself is split between the two parties. And we see how even this transferring, we're having some snags, partisan snags in the transfer of control of the impeachment process from the House to the Senate, i.e. the Democrats to the Republicans. You know, so that's been very interesting. I also find it somewhat presumptuous on her part you know, um, she's questions the president's ability to make his decisions. He's, of course, a Republican president. She did not go to the courts to work out this executive privilege can't claim, which ended up to be part of one of the articles of impeachment. The, the Supreme Court is 5-4 Republican appointees. The Republicans have 53 on the Senate. She's now questioning their ability to come up with their own rules for their trial. But when she came up for the rules of the House trial, she didn't allow any input from any other branch. So she's controlling her her chamber entirely and questioning the ability of these other important institutions in the federal government to make their determinations. So on some level, I find it problematic. And just thinking about strategy, is McConnell going to just say, fine, if you don't want to send it, don't send it? Or is he at some point going to say, hey, I'll schedule a trial. You can send your team or not. You know, so I, I we're in, we're in new territory with that one. Wow. Yeah, and do you do you think it? So you know, she she did publicly make the claim early on in this process that it it shouldn't be a partisan process. Uh, it, it seems to me that if she would have taken some of those steps to reach out to other branches of government and to, uh, to that that would have given her more support for even coming to a decision of not sending the articles of impeachment to the Senate. Uh, I mean, it just seems like that's a misstep on her part to want, on the one hand, say, okay, originally, I don't want this to be partisan. It ends up being very partisan and not only that, controlled within the House uh, uh, so that uh, she can get the outcome, whatever that may be, the outcome that she wants, at least on the House part of it. And, and I, I think they've achieved that. But but then I just see that she's on very shaky ground and almost at the point has to be to their advantage in some way, whether it goes back to her own uh, political aspirations of wanting to hold the speakership, of course, getting reelected. Uh, I just think that that she would have had a stronger case of saying, okay, if you consider all this together, even with the impeachment, we did that. We've got that blot on his record. Uh, but in consultation with these other branches of government, uh, we don't see that this needs to go forward. Yeah, there was a time last spring where she said she wouldn't move on any impeachment unless it was bipartisan in nature. Um, that's what you would need if you were potentially trying to convict and remove, because the threshold in the Senate is two thirds and no party has two thirds. You need support that crosses. But instead, we've saw, we've seen her go forward here and done it in a way in the House where it was not designed to build up support amongst Republicans. Um, we talked earlier in another episode about putting Adam Schiff in that position. He's also from a very big Democratic district, Jerry Nadler in that position. All the chairmen of those committees are from New York City, Los Angeles, San Francisco, or Massachusetts from very Democratic areas. And they've been pushing forward here 
um, in this manner, you know, so that's problematic. And now her request, so she's done rules that have not been seen by the Republican side as bipartisan. They've complained the whole time. And now her request to McConnell, he needs to work with Schumer to come up with some bipartisan rules over there. Um, what Schumer has been requesting has not been bipartisan rules. Schumer has been requesting he wants certain people in Trump's executive branch to testify, but he will never let the whistleblower testify or Adam Schiff testify right. or any of the others. So in the Senate side, they're not even themselves requesting this kind of bipartisan trial format. So I think she's playing politics. She's playing partisan politics at the time we would expect someone to play partisan politics, which is before the primaries. This is when the U.S. is its most partisan, right before it has its partisan primaries. She has a primary on March 3rd. Trump is set up for a win here, either a quick win or a longer win, because he's going to be found not guilty in the Senate. I don't think she wants that to happen before her March 3rd primary. If she gets a Republican opponent, she'll be fine after that, no matter what. So that leads us to talk about the political implications here going into the primary and into this election cycle. Uh, uh, I think for a lot of people, uh, maybe listening or, or looking at a lot of this, the, the those political implications are hard to to uh, to identify sometimes because the, this is is it, while it's moving. Uh, quickly, the the dynamics are changing. Each move brings up a new uh, new questions about motivations and direction and outcomes. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the clarity here what uh, what what can we offer our uh, listeners uh, to try to help kind of understand where this is moving and and what the implications are going into the primary process. Yeah, so uh, we just seen the the House take its vote. And um, in Democratic districts, this is very popular vote. And the timing of this was very difficult for Democratic members from Trump districts because the good vote for their primary is a yes, because the Democratic Party, 84% of Democrats want a yes. But if they're in a Trump district, um, that's a tough vote come the general election. So they're in this situation where they still have two steps to win re-election. And they got to do a vote that's good for one step, not good for the other. But not all these districts are the same. So we talk about a Trump district. You know, there's some districts Trump won by one point. So it's barely a Trump district, you know. So that might make someone less um, worried about casting a yes vote on articles of impeachment. Uh, some of these Trump districts are by 10 points, 15 points. You know, those are that's a very difficult vote. And then also the rules, Eric, in the Democratic primary, I think, are important. So in a closed primary, you're only asking fellow Democrats who the nominee is going to be. And so some of these Democrats seeking re-election are about to face a vote by only Democrats. But 12 of these 31 districts are open primary states where someone can maybe get their nomination or their party with independents and Republicans crossing over to vote in that primary. And that would make it a little more difficult. But I've kind of gone through this list of 31 uh, Democrats from Trump districts. One of them is going to try to be a Republican, as we talked about, Jefferson Van Drew. But it's at least about 30. But there's some of these are very difficult um, situations. You're looking at first term congressmen in solid Trump districts who just voted to impeach the president that the district selected four years ago. And when they won their seat in 2018, Trump wasn't on the ballot. So all those Trump supporters didn't show up and vote. Um, so we have some members like Alyssa Slotkin in Michigan. That's a Trump district by seven. She's first term. Andy Kim in New Jersey, first term. Trump district by six points. Social Small in New Mexico, Trump district by 10, first term. Max Rose, Trump district by 10, first term. Uh, I get a, like 10 of these. Anthony Brindisi, Trump district by 15, first term in New York. Um, the Republicans were already going to gain seats in the House just because we are coming into a presidential election year. Opposition does really well in midterms. We're coming to a presidential election year where Republicans will show up in better number. They're already going to gain some of these seats. But now that some of them took very difficult votes, they're going to gain even more. The question is, can they actually get control of the House? That hasn't happened since 1948 that a president gained a House. They usually lose them and never get them back. Um, so I, I still think that's unlikely that the Republicans will gain the House, but it's now 
it's now plausible, if not if not probable. Well, so the the one of the questions are looking at this, and and we're we're down to just a few minutes left in the show today. But uh, these, uh, how does it benefit the those Democrats in those uh, districts that Trump won uh, with the, with the delay? Uh, I mean, do uh, if if the the further Pelosi pushes this out, you know, you could see if there was. Uh, a government shutdown maybe in the works, but that's been averted now through fiscal year 2020. Um, it, it, do you see that, that this is all about the primaries or does the longer this is delayed, could it have a might benefit her, but it's going to have more of an impact on these uh, Democratic uh, representatives that are in districts that Trump won? The delay politically is very interesting. Um, Trump's going to have a win once the Senate conducts its trial and ultimately votes on that, um, I could see this delay as good for her in her district. She would like to be seen as the person fighting to impeach the president, not the one that oversaw an ineffective, not guilty impeachment in her district. Um, but those yes votes by the House members are kind of done. Um, she, it, she should have maybe delayed the impeachment vote until after the primaries, if she was thinking in terms of her moderate members, in which case you'd have more no's. But I find very interesting that the Democrats, at least the stuff I'm seeing, they're very angry at some of the members to vote no. And I'm thinking, what a what lack of strategy, because this is largely symbolic. We're not convicting and removing the president. So they're voting no. That'll help them win re-election. That'll help the Democratic Party keep control of the House. And you imagine if someone's going to take a vote that's going to make it hard to keep their seat, you'd want it to be a consequential vote. You'd want it to be a vote that got right. some great health care thing through, that, that actually convicted and removed the president, something that actually was a consequential vote that actually changed policy in America. You, you'd want someone to take a really dangerous vote like that. But if the best thing the Democrats have going is the House of Representatives, and they're putting their most moderate members from Trump districts in a very difficult situation. There's just not much strategy there. You know, that's passion, but not strategy. Um, and so this delay, I, I think it's really interesting. You know, what's McConnell's reaction going to be? Because he doesn't feel like Pelosi is going to dictate to the Senate what to do. And I'm sure if she tries to drag it out too long, the M McConnell will come up with some sort of plan. And I think the question will be, is the Chief Justice on board with that plan or not? Because if he shows up for a trial and she and her team doesn't, you know, <laughs> I, I think they'll, they'll have a case that they're just choosing not to show up. Well, thank you. That, that's great analysis. And uh, we appreciate your listening f uh, to us today on Cogley and Morrow on politics. Uh, join us each week right here on KTRL FM 90.5 at 12 noon. And we'll look forward to being with you again on next week's show. Thank you. This has been a Tarleton Radio Network podcast with production from A.J. Heyer and Taylor Welch. Find more great shows by searching Tarleton Radio Network wherever you get your podcasts.